them back there now to, uh, to, to check in. For those of you whose kids are staying in the service with us, um, we want you to know they are most welcome to stay with us. And we have a little uh, worship guide that they can use to go through the service with us. And so we, we love having uh, kids in here. And um, we, uh, week by week, we read a, a paragraph from our confession, um, the 1689 London Confession of Faith. And this morning, we are, uh, there's a typo in your bulletin. We're actually beginning chapter 7, which relates to God's covenant. And I just want to read paragraph 1 to you uh, this morning. It says this, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, God stooping to us as creatures, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. And we know that God ultimately is the keeper of our covenant, which is why we can enjoy a relationship with him. Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 4, and, uh, and just on a personal note, I want to thank you guys for, um, and I'll try not to get emotional. <clears throat> just the love that you uh, have showed my family and your prayers uh, just during this season of life. Um, as many of you know, it's been a difficult season of life for us, and um, and for me personally, uh, even though it's you know in some ways just been three weeks since I've seen many of you, three weeks is way too long for me to uh, have the opportunity to gather, and so I'm very happy to be here and um, to be able to gather with you guys and worship the Lord with you. And um, my wife wanted me to tell you a joke. This morning, and the joke is, is that uh, I barely finished the One City Newport News Marathon before coming. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. Um, but allow me to do this. Let me um, let me pray for us, uh, even before I read our passage of scripture. Just because I have some, um, I, I want to catch us up in the in the Gospel of Mark, since it's been a few months since we uh, have been in that book, and uh, and I'm excited to be able to jump back in. Uh, with you. And so why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and then uh, we will begin to look at Mark chapter 4 together. Lord, I thank you for Christ. I thank you for the gift it is for us to be saved by you and to gather <clears throat> and to be strengthened, Lord, by these ordinary means of grace, Lord, by your word, God, by corporate prayer as we speak to you together, God, as we sing the, the, these great doctrines that your word contains, Lord, in a few minutes when we take the Lord's Supper, God, we're, those are ways that you're building us and strengthening us and conforming us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, we are extremely grateful. And as we look at your word this morning, specifically just want to thank you for your spirit, God, as we're going to be reminded that apart from your spirit, we, we would not be able to spiritually discern these sacred words of scripture. 
And so thank you for the spirit, Lord. And, and, and we just declare as your church our utter dependence upon your spirit. And we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said this morning, we are um, getting back to the gospel of Mark. And I just wanted to mention a few things just by way of reminder. Uh, and if you're new to Deer Park, if you've been visiting with us over uh, just the last several weeks, um, if you're able, I would even encourage you to go to our website and just even listen to the past sermons, uh, chapters one through three that we, we went with, if you're interested in doing that. Um, but just by, again, way of reminder, uh, Mark is believed by scholars to be uh, the, the earliest gospel, a, a gospel account that both uh, Matthew and Luke used as they compiled their narrative about the ministry of Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And John Mark is the author of this gospel, and he was heavily ministered to uh, by the Apostle Peter. Uh, and as we've moved along in the, the first three chapters, we've seen that Peter's house really is kind of a hub for uh, the ministry of Jesus it was a place that the multitude would know where to find uh, Jesus uh, uh, there with his uh, disciples. But Peter, he was so influential in, in John Mark's life uh, that church tradition would even refer to the gospel of Mark as Peter's memoirs. Uh, as this gospel reflects in many ways the, the preaching ministry of the apostle Peter. Uh, the book... It was written during the reign and in, in, in the, the fierce persecution of Emperor Nero, who was a, a wicked tyrant uh, as it related um, to his um, position uh, toward Christians, his heart posture toward Christians. And so this uh, gospel was written in the, in the 50s, late 60s, uh, perhaps uh, somewhere around in there. And for those of you familiar with the gospel, you would know that John Mark's style, it's, it's an immediate style. It's, it's, um, it's the, the, uh, kind of a shorthand, if you will, if you were to compare it to some of the, the, uh, the other gospels. It's mainly action-focused. And, and throughout church history, this particular gospel has been uh, again, when compared with Matthew and with Luke and with John, it's uh, been very understudied. And as we've worked through these first three chapters together, you will remember that there is this emphasis there on uh, the humanity of Jesus, that he is truly man, and also the deity of Jesus, that he is truly God. Uh, we've seen John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus, him proclaiming him as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah. We've seen the Father and the Spirit bear witness uh, to the uh, identity of Jesus, right? We saw the baptism of Christ, right? We've noted the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. We've seen uh, various miracles that he has performed, including exorcisms and interactions with various demons that also confirm the identity of Jesus Christ. Yet we've also seen how Christ was rejected, um, fiercely rejected. He, he, he was rejected by those that we would think would be uh, receptive 
to him, be eager to receive him. He was rejected by the religious leaders who sought to undermine him and who plotted to kill him. And we even saw at the close of chapter 3 that his own family initially misunderstood him. They thought him to be uh, out of his mind. They thought him to be crazy and unwittingly they sought to interrupt his messianic work, his, his work of seeking and saving the lost. And what's clear just from all of this, even from these, you know, just first three chapters here, is that the first advent of Christ was not what people thought that it was going to be. Right? It wasn't what people thought it was going to be. And in light of the rejection of the religious leaders and the opposition that Jesus constantly faced, we have this parable that we're going to look at this morning, a parable that you're probably familiar with. It's one known as the parable of the soils, though I think it could easily be called a a look at the human heart. Uh, In fact, we're going to spend two weeks, Lord willing, on this parable together, and I'm going to spend a lot more time um, on uh, examining the human heart through the lens of this particular parable that Jesus gives. But before I read the parable... Allow me to define for you, just shorthand, just what a parable is. And this isn't my definition. This is one that I thought captured um, the, the definition of a parable quite well. And, and, and here, here's, the, here's the definition. A parable is a story or saying that illustrates a truth using comparison, hyperbole, or simile. Okay, so it's a story or a saying that illustrates truth using comparison, hyperbole, or simile. Now, that's what a parable is, but there remains a question for us as to why Jesus used parables to illustrate truth. And and this is a significant question, one that we don't just need to, to quickly move past because Jesus utilized parables often to illustrate truth. Another reason that we need to ask this question is because the answer to this question is a significant Uh, portion of our text this morning? And the answer is twofold, and I want to give it to you just up front because I want us to strive to keep this in mind as we work through our text so you can spot better what Jesus is doing. And so if you're taking notes, and kids, if you're uh, moving along with us, you can kind of look on with your parents' worship guide. But the purpose of a parable, the twofold purpose, is to reveal and conceal. To reveal and and conceal. Okay, so purpose one is to reveal truth to God's people, and purpose two is to conceal truth in judgment toward those who are hard-hearted, to those that are prideful. And, and, And perhaps this second purpose, okay, this concealing purpose is why the Hebrew word for parable can be translated as a taunt, or a riddle even. So as I read this passage, hold that in your mind. And also, I want you to pay attention to who it is that Christ is addressing in these parables. You'll see that he has his disciples that are following him. But there's also this multitude, which we see come up frequently, even in just these first three chapters here in the Gospel of Mark. And this multitude, of course, would have been filled with people with all different types of motives, okay? There would have been people that genuinely were coming to worship Jesus as the Messiah. There would have been people there that were coming to see the spectacle, right? They've heard rumors and they want to come to see the the show, if you will, right? There would have been people there that 
Perhaps we're looking at what they could get from Jesus, but we're apathetic as to who Jesus really is. Right? And then there would have, of course, been collisions with religious leaders who seem to follow Jesus wherever he, he goes and, and, and seek to undermine his person and his work. And so, so just with this context in mind, I want to read for us just the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 4. And as I go along this morning, I'll, I'll pause here and there just to um, uh, mention things that, that I think would be profitable for you to notice as I read. And, and just by way of, you know, you're interested in, in further study, the, the other gospel, or Matthew and Mark both have an account of this. You can read that in Matthew chapter 13 and Luke chapter 8, but I'm not going to read those passages to you this morning. But let's read the first 20 verses here. John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, it says this, And again, he, okay, speaking of Christ, began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got in a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables. Right? So there, there, there would have been people present there that did learn in, in, in that multitude. Okay? They were taught in parable form. Okay? We'll keep going. And he said to them, in his teaching. Listen, in other words, pay attention, hear with understanding, internalize the, the truth that's being conveyed. Okay, listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. It's the first type of soil. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. It's the second type of soil. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. It's the third type of soil. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced. Some thirtyfold, some sixty, some a hundred, which is the fourth type of soil. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So stop there for a minute. Okay, think of how this would have been received in an agrarian culture, right? A, a culture that was more familiar and more dependent upon farming, right? Certainly there would have been some sense of understanding about the need for good soil, right? The, the type of soil that you put a seed in is of supreme importance, right? If the soil isn't good, right? If it's not rich in nutrients, if it's not fertile, if it doesn't have the right bugs, right? Then it's going to have a direct impact on whether the seed produces fruit or not. It will have an impact even on the quality of the fruit that it does produce, right? For those of us this morning that perhaps do a little gardening, we, we can get this, although to a much lesser extent, but soil matters, right? Soil matters, and certainly this would have been understandable uh, to this multitude that was gathered there. But the question is, can the spiritual significance be discerned? Can the spiritual significance be discerned? Is the multitude grasping the truth in this agrarian-themed parable? Okay, that, that, that's the question. 
Let's keep reading. Verse 10. But when he, speaking of Christ, was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. Okay, so now Jesus and the disciples, they're away from the crowd. Okay, at this point, they've moved away from the multitude. Verse 11. And he, Jesus, said to them, to you, right, to who? To the disciples. He says, to you, it's been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Of God, which is an important phrase. The mystery of the kingdom of God is an important phrase. But those who are outside, outside meaning not Jesus' disciples, all things come in parables. Right? Again, remember the twofold purpose of parables. So that, and then Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah here when the Lord told Isaiah about how his preaching ministry was going to be received after the Lord saved Isaiah. He commissions him, and by the way, this is how your message is going to be received. He quotes Isaiah, So that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And then we get to the interpretation of the parable of the soils in verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then... Will you understand all parables? So this seems to be kind of a chief parable, if you will. The sower is the interpretation. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These, likewise, are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, And they have no root in themselves, and so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Right? So, so Jesus is he's u- using this parable to illustrate something about the heart of man. Right? He's, he's using this parable to illustrate something about the heart of man or, or the varying degrees at which man is capable of receiving the Word of God, which is to, to spiritually profit, to eternally profit from the Word of God. And, and that's what I'm going to spend most of my time on next week. So, so you know, it's going to be the part that I'm largely neglecting this morning. But there's some important preliminary things that we need to observe in this first pass, if you will, at this parable. So if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down as well. We need eyes of faith to truly understand God's Word. We need eyes of faith to truly understand God's Word, which we'll see again even more clearly next week as we look at the the varying degrees at which man receives the Word of God, the different soils, the different types of hearts that encounter God's Word. But think about this for a moment. The the whole multitude is is hearing this parable being taught. 
Right? They, they would have even been able to grasp the need for good soil as it relates to producing fruit. Right? So, so nobody is excluded from the message that Christ is preaching, but not everybody there is spiritually discerning the meaning of the parable. And, and we see that happen all throughout the ministry of Jesus. Now, why is this exactly? Why is this? It's because faith, right, which we have to remember, isn't something that we conjure up ourselves. The Scripture tells us that faith is what? It's, it's a gift. It's a gift from God, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which remind us that it's not just grace that's a gift, but it is faith as well that's a gift. But faith must precede, it must come before true spiritual understanding. Okay, so faith comes before true spiritual understanding, true spiritual discernment. And this isn't because Christians have some sort of special secret knowledge. Rather, it's because the Holy Spirit of God is the rightful interpreter of God's Word, and, and we must possess the Holy Spirit, or, or, or better put, the Holy Spirit must possess us right? in order for us to spiritually profit from God's Word. And we're utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God as it relates to hearing the Word of God, as it relates to reading the Word of God, as it relates to even understanding anything, again, of spiritual significance about the Word of God. Augustine, an early church father, is known for, for saying, unless you believe, you will not understand. Right? Unless you believe, you will not understand. And again, this relates to spiritual understanding. And, and this harmonizes well with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, which is where Augustine would have got such a conclusion from. Right? In 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us. Right? And we could be included, right, if you share union with Jesus, but to us being saved, it's the power of God. And so the message of the cross is foolishness from a worldly perspective, but those who spiritually discern, for those who are being saved, we see that it's not foolishness. We see that it's the power of God. Right? The gospel of God, which is the message of the Old and New Testament, right? it's foolish to those who look at it with pride. It's foolish to those who look at it with a cold, hardened heart. Right? Relate this to how we like, approach the Scriptures for just a moment. Now, anybody can read the Bible. And anybody can read the Bible. Anybody can study the Bible. Anybody can grasp the context of the Bible. Anybody can do proper word studies on the Bible. There's nothing spiritual at all about any of that. Any academic skilled in ancient languages can translate the Bible. But none of that produces a spiritual man or woman, does it? None of it. None of it produces a spiritual man or woman. Right? It's the Spirit of God through the Word 
of God that produces in us the ability to perceive what matters in the living and acting, active Word of God. Right? It's the Spirit of God through the Word of God that produces in us eyes of faith that leads us to repentance, that leads us to eternal life. So if you're a Christian this morning, right, it's not because you read the right things or you studied the right things, right? You're a Christian this morning because you discerned by God's Spirit the divine intent of the Scriptures, right? You discern the the, the divine intent of the Scriptures, right? You've discerned what Jesus says in our passage this morning, which I told you to note when I was reading it, is, quote, the mystery of the kingdom of God that we see in verse 11. What is that exactly? The mystery of the kingdom of God. Well, there's a couple of passages, other passages, that help to bring that into better focus. And you can turn there. I think we may have them up on the screen as well. But the first one would refer you to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. All right, Paul writing, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to the church of Ephesus. All right, Paul says, in Him, right in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to the good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. Again, we see that phrase, mystery, there. Mystery of His will. By the way, we kind of sang about it just a moment ago in that new song that we did. Or Colossians chapter 1, verses 23 to 27. Paul, writing to the church of Colossae, says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, Look, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his who? Saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, here we go, Christ in you, the hope of of glory. So did you catch what Paul's saying again under the inspiration of the Spirit defining mystery, defining mystery revealed, right? Just in those two passages that we and again we sang about this just a few moments ago, but we all of us, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, people of all nations, all tongues have redemption through the blood of Jesus. We have the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Jesus, and that together all of us are one in Christ. We're His body. We're His bride. We're the church. How glorious is that? It's incredible. 
Right? That is what by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is spiritually discerned amongst Christ's disciples. And we have nothing in us that we can boast about as it relates to grasping that mystery that's now revealed. There's no room for pride here. Right? This mystery that has been revealed, and not just revealed, but applied to you, Christian, and to me. It's all of grace. Every bit of it is grace. And for those of us that have, have truly tasted that, right, spiritually tasted that, should stir something in us. Right? That should cause us to want to do what it what, what it is that we do every Lord's Day is we come together as the body of Christ and we worship this overflow of gratitude that this mystery revealed that Christ is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins and that He accomplished that in His humiliation, His, his first advent, His coming and taking on flesh, being truly man while not diminishing any of His deity is taking our sins upon Himself, Him going to the cross, Him enduring the wrath of God for us, Him going, descending, and, and, and not just descending, but by the Holy Spirit of God, resurrecting bodily and eternally, acquiring for us reconciliation forever and ever. Right, And that, by the Spirit of God, being applied to us, not because there is anything worthy in us to save in and of ourselves, but because God looked at us, His image bearers, and He said, I'm going to save you based on my own good character. That's glorious. And it's sure. It's a salvation that can't be lost. And that's what we see Christ proclaiming right in Mark's gospel. Right, that He's, in fact, the, the long-awaited-for Messiah. Right, it's what we see authenticated through His miracles and through the various testimonies about Him. And isn't this what those who longed for Him confessed? Absolutely. But there's another group here, right, that we've made mention of already within earshot of this parable that's been given. And it's those whose hearts were full of pride and arrogance. People that would reject, right? So they would refuse to believe this glorious reality. And in their unbelief, the Holy Spirit of God concealed the spiritual message from them. He concealed this mystery that we're talking about this morning. So we see here, not just an outworking of the grace of God, which would be the reveal part of this parable, but we also see an outworking of the judgment of God, which would be revealed, the sec, you know, it would be the concealed part of this parable. And that's the third thing, third and final thing we should note this morning. The parables reveal God's grace, and they reveal, on the other hand, God's judgment, too. In this way, the, the ministry of Jesus is the ministry of of Isaiah. And that's why John Mark's careful to record in this parable the outworking. And you can, again, go and, and read the, the, the passage in Isaiah. There's various passages, and one that I'm actually going to bring in here in a moment, but read it for yourself. But 
John Mark's careful to record the outworking of Isaiah's ministry, which is a ministry that was characteristic of one being rejected and one being despised. But another prophecy of Isaiah speaks of Christ years before Christ would come in the incarnation, and we learn that the ministry of Jesus, right, would be one of being despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 5. But it's also, it's no coincidence for us that we see in the writings of Isaiah a promise regarding God's Word, a, a promise that ultimately God's Word will not return void. And, and just in closing this morning, I want to read that passage to us. And you can turn there. It's found in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 to 13. The Word of the Lord says this, For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, And make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. Listen to this. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish, and hear this well, it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy. And be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, a result of the curse. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name. For an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Doesn't that pair so well with our parable this morning. Right? We see again and there agrarian language in the very words of, of Isaiah. And we see that the Word of God, right, according to the Spirit of God, speaking through Isaiah, will accomplish what pleases the Lord who sends His Word. Right? And ultimately, the Word of God is, is, is moving us, is ushering us toward Joy is ushering us toward peace, toward a world that sings before the Lord, that claps before the Lord, a world that, that, that testifies to the name of the Lord everlastingly. So. That's the word sown. It's what the word is doing, sown in good soil. It's what it's doing gradually. Right? It's growing toward that in the lives of people who Receive it by faith, right? In the, in the presence of those that reject the word of the Lord, like those religious leaders in the time of Jesus, or like those who only come to Jesus because of what they can get from him, or like those that we know and see who mock and ridicule or are hard-hearted or who think that they can come to Jesus on their own terms, their, their rejection isn't an indicator that the Word of God is ineffectual. On the contrary, our passage here in Mark, paired with the message in the ministry of the prophet Isaiah, demonstrates that the Word of God by the Spirit of God accomplishes, always accomplishes, God's eternal decree. 
Right? The word of the Lord received by faith softens an individual. Right? The word of the Lord right, is effectual to save an individual that receives the word of God by faith. Right? It reveals to us the grace of God. The word of God received in unbelief further hardens an individual and it reveals God's judgment. It cements the rebellion and it drives those who remain in their hard-heartedness. It drives them further into their lusts and into their gods. It's God giving them over to their rebellion. Romans chapter 1 verse 24. It's the wrath of God revealed. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. But either way, the word of God It never returns void. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer together? God, we thank you for allowing us to just, for a few minutes this morning, look at the purpose of parables, God, so that we can better understand why Jesus used parables. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, God, that each week as we hear the Word of God together, as we look at the Word as individuals throughout the rest of the week, that, God, we would just sink further and further into grace. And that would drive us and motivate us to worship You more and more. And, God, I pray for the unbeliever that may be here this morning. God, I pray that it be your will, that it would soften, your word would soften, not harden them. And cause them, Lord, to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for their salvation. And Lord, in all things, we trust from your word that your word does not return void, that it's not wasted, that it's not ineffectual. And that gives us great hope and great comfort, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.